As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and look back is it fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 other and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord for the harvest, therefore to send out work to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who, who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the workers deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there, who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But... When you enter a town or not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for the town. Woe to you, Corazians, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracle that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to hate. Whoever listened to you, listen to me. Whoever rejects you, 
rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snake and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name are written in heaven. At the time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son of Son choose to reveal him. Then he returned to disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but you did not hear it. Thank you, Danny. Wowzers. Oh, you're right, man? It's all right. Uh, welcome, guys and gals. It's lovely to have you along. If you're new or visiting today, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm the, one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. And please, if you've got a Bible handy, keep it open in that, um, in that passage in Luke 9. It's a big chunk. Well, Luke 9, Luke 10. It's a big chunk. Um, feel at ease that we're not actually going to be covering it all verse by verse. I'll... Uh, I'll I'll, I'll hone in on a little bit. Let me make sure I just forgot. I've got to get my um, recording going for our podcast. Uh, but we are going to pray before we start and ask God to help us uh, understand and apply it. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And we do ask now that you would reveal yourself in such a way that we could not but see you for all your glory. That we could not but hear your command to follow and obey. And we pray it. For Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen. Now, have you ever been suckered into a deal or, or maybe into a purchase or maybe even into a group where what you thought you were signing up for was completely different from the actual reality at the end? Uh, Christmas is a classic for this, you know, where there's a hidden fine print, where there's a sneaky clause added, when there's some kind of non-obvious statement that had you known it up front, it would have radically changed your actions or your decisions or your purchase. And I'm thinking about things like the, the zero interest credit card. You ever heard of that? Zero interest credit card. Come and get one. Zero interest. Where the asterisk is there and it actually represents the fact that zero interest lasts for three months and then automatically switches to about 400% interest. You know that one? Or it's the purchase of a product at a good price. Wow. It's that cheap. Only to find that it doesn't work properly unless you buy the, you know, the, um, the flugel binder accessory, you know, that's sold separately about the same cost. You know, it's the batteries not included. How many kids at Christmas got remote control cars and didn't realise the old batteries weren't included? Not my boy. I had the batteries, didn't I, Elias? <clears throat> it's a win-win. <clears throat> or when you fill out the, the competition to win a fair... I remember this, by the way. I, mean, I remember at the fish and chip shop up at Turvy Tops. Every week, it seemed, there was a competition to be won. 
where you could fill it out and you could win a free family portrait sitting. You ever seen this one? And amazingly, you'll win every week, right? But what you've won is the right to have a photographer take some family pictures that then you can buy, that you can then buy off them, kind of like you're just ringing up a photographer and asking to have some pictures taken. <laughs> what you've won, really, you haven't won anything. You've, you've simply signed up and given the photographer permission and opportunity to guilt you into buying some photos that you didn't otherwise want taken. <laughs> That's what you've won. You know, the same thing happens in direct marketing groups. The same thing happens in activist groups. The same thing even happens in religions all the time. I mentioned in the past, you'll notice I've been reading a little bit about Scientology recently, making a few references there. Look, I, I, I've witnessed this and I've, I've heard about this sort of stuff. People in Scientology who are invested for years and countless hours of courses costing thousands and thousands of dollars before they get to operating Thetan Level 3, where they first hear about Zeno, you know, the intergalactic dictator who's really behind putting people on Earth or, as he calls it, TGAC about 75 million years ago. But that's some serious fine print there, right? That is some serious fine print. I watched the testimony of a former Scientologist talking about this. He expressed this amount of disbelief when he got to operating Thetan Level 3 and saying that he actually forced himself to accept this stuff at first because it was too painful, it was too disorienting, in fact, it was too embarrassing to consider that he'd wasted so much time, so much effort, so much money, that he'd so much wasted his life if it was, in fact, true, that it wasn't true. <laughs> he couldn't do it for a long time. Do you, see, do you, do you hear the, the power of the fine print? Do you see the danger of the sneaky clause or the surprise doctrine? Do you hear it? It's real, it's raw, and it's out there. And I want to point it out today because it's not what you get in Christianity. It's not what you get with Jesus. Jesus, we see here, he is up front from the get-go, calling people to follow him, outlining the costs in advance, and he expects you to follow. As I said, there's heap of juicy bits in this, uh, this section of the Bible. I'm not going to go over all of those. I'm going to focus particularly on chapter 9, 57 to 62. Keep your eyes here because here is where you will best see the integrity of Jesus on display, the place where we can best understand what it means to follow him, i.e. live as a Christian. And you'll notice that far from trying to sort of sugar glaze or falsely flatter people into uh, becoming Christians, actually you could almost be excused for thinking that it seems as though Jesus is almost talking people out of it. Because what he says here, make no mistake about it, what he says here about genuinely following him is either the harshest, stupidest sales pitch ever concocted or it's the most important, significant and all-consuming invitation you'll ever hear. It's one or the other. And I say that you'll ever hear because God is still this day inviting and people to follow him in this room he is still inviting you personally god is addressing you through his word inviting and in fact not even inviting do you realize he's commanding you to follow him he's commanding that you entrust your life to jesus because there's nothing and no one more important there's nothing more significant no situation more pressing or urgent than responding to his call to follow but he wants to make sure you count the cost. That's what Jesus is laying out here. So 
clearly, so calmly, so convincingly. In fact, if I was to boil it down to a simple statement today, I would say something like this. Following Jesus is free, but it will rightly cost you everything. You hear that? Do you understand that? Following Jesus and therefore entry into God's kingdom, that idea of peace and forgiveness with God that will last for eternity, that is 100% free. You ca- There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you need to do to merit it. There's nothing you ought do to pay it back. It is simply through trusting Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection on your behalf And yet at the same moment that you realise, that you genuinely realise and accept the enormity of that offer, you will willingly lay down anything and everything that will distract you or rob you from that glorious truth. It will rightly cost you everything. Look at how it plays out with me in the text. Look at these three conversations that Jesus has here, recorded by Luke. And what we'll see here, time and time again, Jesus is laying down a principle of discipleship, following him is costly. But look at how he applies it so specifically to individuals, in a, like I say, a kind of a tailor-made fashion, that he really gets to the heart of the issue for the person in front of him. He immediately lays the principle down, and then he points to the spot, the exact sore spot that would prevent that person, someone really following him, if they left that untreated. See what I mean? Have a look at it here. Verse 57, start there with me. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And that sounds like a serious guy, yes? Look at Jesus' reply, verse 58. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Now again, do you hear just the heartbeat of the principle there? Do you hear the heartbeat? That the principle here is a, following me is free is what Jesus is saying, but it will, it'll, it's going to cost you. And then what's the raw nerve for this guy? What's the potential stumbling block that this guy needs to see and address in his own life? Following Jesus means a massive change in his attitude. Actually, it comes down to Christ versus comfort and convenience. Do you see that? Foxes have dens, Jesus says. Foxes have somewhere well, warm and well-known to return to, a place of comfort and safety. Birds too? They build a nest, a place conveniently located, top of a tree, close to the water source, close to the food supplies and the best schools in town, no doubt. Enough space to raise a few chicks, have friends over. You know what I'm talking about? But the Son of Man, and therefore anyone who would follow him, nowhere on earth is home. In fact, if you want to follow him, Paul will say later, you should consider yourself like a refugee, a sojourner, a temporary resident. Someone who's just passing through. Because heaven is now home, your citizenship is in heaven, and therefore earthly convenience and comfort, it cannot be your priority if you're genuinely following him. Do you hear the cost of discipleship? Some of us need to hear this today. Like I said before, the principle is the same for everyone. Discipleship is costly, but some people here need to hear... And apply this personally because comfort and convenience is the cost of discipleship that you balk at. Comfort and convenience is the issue that stops you taking Christianity and following Jesus as Saviour and King seriously. 
Comfort and convenience is the issue that's stunting your spiritual maturity. Is that you? I don't know. <laughs> God knows you've probably got an inkling. Look, the fact that you're here on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, that's a pretty good indicator, you know? <laughs> My sense is that maybe I should be making eye contact with those who are listening online. <laughs> But just in case you genuinely aren't sure, please, this is worthwhile do. Here's a couple of questions to ask yourself as a way of testing this out. How often do you let your Christianity and your Christian convictions impact your decisions? What, yearly, monthly, weekly, daily? When was the last time that being a Christian and being a follower of Christ meant that it made life a little bit more difficult for you? Because you went out of your way for someone else. Because you got up at nine o'clock on Boxing Day morning after a massive Christmas day the day before and went, you know what, I'm still going to prioritise coming to church and sitting with God's people under his word because he's king. When was the last time that you did something for someone else and you put their needs before your own at the cost of you or your family? Have you ever done that? It's a question worth asking. Or, or look at it from this way, look at it from this way. Your level of generosity in terms of the way you steward your finances. Yet God has been exceedingly generous to us and to each of us here. And he's calling us to be likewise generous to others. But is your generosity dictated by your surplus? Are you giving out of the overflow of abundance? Or does your generosity hurt a little? Now, now, hear me really clearly at this point. I'm definitely, it is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to, I'm not talking about your, church, your finances, your financial giving to church here. In fact, if you're a visitor today, can you hear me ultra clearly? You, there's no basket coming around later on. <laughs> I don't want you to put any money in, in a plate at that point. You're our guest and we, would, we love that you're here. I'm not talking about church giving. I'm talking about generosity more generally. How do you use your finances in the support of others, in the support of gospel work across the globe, across the nation, across the town you live in, including the church local? Does your financial generosity to support these global ministries bite? Does it bite into your comfort and convenience a little bit? Does your, your, your sense of wanting others to hear the saving invitation of Jesus, does it actually mean you can't buy that extra ivory back scratcher this year? That's not generosity. You see what I'm talking about? Does it actually cost? Jesus says it should. Because comfort and convenience are not the primary considerations of people who are genuinely following him. And we need to be people willing to lay down comfort and convenience. We need to be willing to lay that down if it would ever stop us or compromise our, com our commitment to Christ and his kingdom purposes. Do you hear that? Be clear, Jesus is not saying that you can't own a nice house. He's not saying that you should feel guilty if you've had three meals in a day or six yesterday. But to this man specifically, particularly at this point in his life, and to some people here potentially or listening in, the desire for comfort and convenience has become an idol of comfort and convenience that needs to be addressed, that needs to be knocked off its preeminent position in your life. Is that you? It's the first question to ask. It's the first question to consider. 
But let's look at the next conversation. Come to conversation 2, verse 59. This time, it's Jesus that initiates the conversation. Did you see that? It's, he said to another man, follow me. Now notice what I mean about this. Is this, is not an, this is not an invitation so much as it is a command. Grammatically speaking, that's an instruction. That's an imperative verb. Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Whoa. <laughs> that escalated quickly, yeah? What is going on here? I mean, it's not like the man refused him outright. In fact, it sounds quite reasonable his request to go and bury his father. First, let me just go and bury my father. Jesus' response here sounds incredibly harsh. Am I not the only... Surely I'm not the only person who's read that and thought that. That sounds incredibly harsh, but look a little closer. Look a little closer at this, because both in terms of the, contra, the, the cultural context and indeed the principle that Jesus is laying down here, if we actually dig into that, it actually helps us to frame this and understand this properly and rightly. Let me explain that a little bit more. Firstly, the cultural context. There's a distinct possibility, a definite possibility, that in this scenario, the man's father is not actually dead yet. What he, rather, what he means, rather, is essentially, he's telling Jesus that before he follows him, he wants to go and do the culturally appropriate thing. He wants to first return home, prioritise the, the care of his family interests and relationships and after filling that cultural duty, whether that be in two, ten or twenty years' time, when his father has passed and he's buried him and he's done everything, then he'll give Jesus his undivided attention. Then I'll come and follow you. Now, do you, do you see that thought? Do you, do you see this? Many Bible commentators go down this line. It's, it's a reasonable suggestion. Let's just follow it for a second. Because if this is indeed the case then what's Jesus' tailor-made application of the cost of discipleship that this guy needs to hear? It's stop thinking anything is more urgent than following me. That's what Jesus is saying. Stop thinking that anything is more urgent than following me. Don't prioritise any relationship, any relationship, of your relationship with your Creator, God. This is the most urgent relationship to attend to. And regardless of how countercultural that was in the day, and regardless of how unpalatable it is even in our culture, it's absolutely right. There is no more significant or urgent relationship for any individual than their relationship with their Creator. It would be utter madness to prioritise a relationship with any other creature, mothers, brothers, fathers, wives, husbands, children, whatever. It would be madness to honour the creaturely relationships we enjoy over the creator of those creatures and relationships. Do you see the point I'm making? And again, hear me right, be very careful here. He doesn't, it just doesn't mean dishonouring creature, creaturely relationships. It doesn't mean dishonouring your mother and father and brother. He's talking about getting your priority, uh, the, the, the order of your affections in the right order. I'll come back to that in a minute. And because, again, some of us need to hear this today. Some of us actively, potentially ignorantly, I want to say, you know, accidentally, without thinking about it, some of us actively honour other relationships as more pressing and urgent over our relationship with Jesus. 
We fall into it. Little Johnny's friend has invited him to a birthday party on Sunday. I don't want Johnny to miss out, so we'll miss church this weekend. Sally's had a hard time at work lately, so I won't go to Bible study tonight. I'll go and have a cuppa with her because she really needs a listening ear. Ah, we've got this Easter camping tradition. And to be honest, Easter's the best time for camping. The weather's magnificent. The fishing's awesome down the south. That's when the water warms up. Mum and Dad really want me to be a doctor, so I'll dedicate all my time and energy to achieving that goal. And if I've got any time left, if I've got any energy left, I'll definitely plug into a church somewhere. Do Do you hear where this is going? You see, there's nothing wrong with birthday parties. Sally should get some of your time and attention. She deserves your care and your listening ear. Everyone should have a camping holiday at least once a year. And we all want more doctors. But do you have a tendency to prioritise these relationships or managing these expectations as more pressing and urgent over and above your allegiance and the urgency of your commitment to Christ and his kingdom? Friend, it's not a guilt trip. It's an honest, necessary question about your spiritual health. And Jesus is asking it of us. There is no more significant, urgent relationship than your relationship with your Lord and Saviour. Do your life choices reflect that? Or are you putting Jesus on the back burner? Just let me bury my my father first, a.k.a. let me prioritise this other relationship or these other expectations first, and then I'll commit to you. Is that you? See, the other thing to notice here is Jesus is not calling you to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. We've seen this already in Luke's Gospel. Jesus Jesus prioritised his relationship with his heavenly Father over and above all others, even over his family members, but it didn't mean disrespecting them. Have a look at it quickly. It should come up on the screen. Luke 2, 49. After Jesus travels down with his family to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, his parents leave, they head out for home, Jesus stays behind in the temple courts, and three days later they find him, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. And when his frantic parents finally find him, what's his response? Chapter 2, verse 49, he says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? He's prioritising his relationship with his God, with God, his father. But then look at verse 51, And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Not the expense of dishonouring or disobeying his family. You see, Jesus prioritises his relationship with his heavenly father as most urgent, but it doesn't negate obedience and right honouring of his earthly parents. That's the line to walk, friends. Again, in Luke 8, 19, Jesus is teaching a crowd when his mother and brothers come to see him. Someone in the crowd lets him know. And what's Jesus' response? 8.21, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. You see, he prioritises the spiritual nature of relationships as most urgent and pressing over the physical relationships, even with his own family, and yet there is no evidence that he does not value or honour his family. In fact, quite the opposite. Look at John's Gospel. Look at it while he's hanging on the cross, mind you. Look at his concern for his mother's ongoing care. Have a look at John 19, 26, and tell me that Jesus doesn't honour his mother. He's hanging on the cross, beaten and bruised, dripping and nearly dead, And though it never trumps his concern to honour his heavenly father first, it's while he's hanging on the cross that he says to his mother, here is your son, 
to John. John, here is your mother. And from that day on, she goes into his care. He prioritizes as most urgent his relationship with his father. And he never once uses that as an excuse to dishonor his, his family. Jesus never calls people to do something he hasn't done himself. Therefore, be careful. Be careful. We all need to hear this, that none of our relationships prevent us from honouring God first. In fact, if you want to love others best, then you need to love God most. I often say this. I often think this. I know this is true. If I want to love Tiana and my kids best in the way that they deserve, in the way that is right, the only way that I can do that is by putting God in his right place, number one. So Tiana and my kids are first his. And to honour them looks like honouring him first and foremost. To prioritise them over God, to make them into little idols or little G-gods out of them, it's not good for me, it's not good for them, and it's not honouring to God. You've got to get your loves in the right order. But back to the cultural context for a minute. Even if this guy's father... Let's imagine for a minute this guy's father was actually dead at this point when, when this guy says it. Even if he was literally asking Jesus, just give me a couple of days or a couple of weeks, I've just got to tie a few things off, even then Jesus' words aren't harsh or horrible. Now, you, you, I think you know this. The context of what Jesus is calling him to is of greater urgency, worth and significance than even burying his own father. And you know what? I think you can get this. I don't think this is too hard to work out. Think about the number of people, the countless number of men and women who were serving and fighting in, well, let's pick World War I or World War II as an example. How many of them had parent style while they were serving on the front line? And how many of them were given release from their post to go back and attend the funerals? None. Why? Because the needs of the country, the urgency of the present circumstance, this dictated that the sacrifice, however painful and difficult, was worth it. And if many people were willing, tearful, but willing, and paid that kind of sacrifice that kind of price in service of a higher cause god king and country type stuff if that can be true of a temporal physical war how much more true is it of an eternal spiritual war when god himself jesus calls this man follow me sorry i've got something more urgent and pressing are you kidding some of us need to hear that challenge today Jesus is issuing it, following him ought be of your most pressing concern. It it should be, he expects it to be. And it brings us to that third conversation. Look at verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Now I'm going to do this one super quick because in many ways it's, it's similar to the second conversation. I think the distinction here is this, he's focusing more on the importance of the task rather than the urgency of the task, if there's a distinction to be made. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It's not an urgent task, but it's not as important a task either. The importance of the kingdom priorities of ploughing straight lines. You, know, you can't plough a straight line with your, with, your hand, with your head over your shoulder, you know what I'm saying? 
So the importance of the task of the kingdom priorities of your personal fitness for God's kingdom and your desire for others to enter, this must take center stage. There can be no looking back and pretending to do it at the same time. My goodness, I thought this was going to be a Boxing Day cheery sermon. All of a sudden, now I'm feeling really hammered. <laughs> See, you know, how can anyone genuinely prioritise the importance and the urgency of Jesus and the gospel and his kingdom work over relationships, over comfort, over convenience, over family expectations? How can anyone really get to that kind of laser focus in the Christian life? Is that even possible? Is that actually even worth it? Should it be something we're aiming for? A thousand times yes. Many of you will have heard the the story of Jim Elliott, a missionary who in the, uh, gosh now, maybe 1954, somewhere in the 1950s, Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed by an Ecuadorian tribe that he went to evangelise. He and about five others, they were challenged about the wisdom of trying to share the gospel with a, with a tribe whose name, the, the Alcas, literally translates to, to savage in their own language. And they were challenged, what's the wisdom of that? Man, you're mad, what are you doing? These people don't know you, don't want to know you, don't want to know about your God. What are you doing? Why would you do that? And his response is famous, you'll have heard it no doubt, and if you haven't, tattoo it on your forehead backwards so that every time you look in the mirror, you see it there. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott understood the urgency and the importance and the priority over his personal comfort, over his convenience of following Christ, even when it actually did mean his death. And I want to say, not only did he gain in that transaction, not only did he gain in that transaction, but I think it was, in in fact, only maybe two years later, through the persistent efforts of Jim's wife and daughter, other missionaries as well, many of the people of the Alcaz tribe came to know Christ as Saviour and Lord too. I think there's a picture there of, uh, I think this is Jim Elliott's daughter. You can go on, there's, there's um, the, sh- uh, the pointy end of the spear or the sharp end of the spear. There's a, there's a number of documentaries about this stuff. It's fascinating, it's phenomenal, it's crazy good. Jim Elliott didn't lose in that transaction. In fact, others gained eternity in that transaction. Friend, it's a very short section of Luke that we're focusing on today. But I want you to see, Jesus is addressing and challenging our strongest fears, our deepest loyalties, our strongest priorities, and he's claiming lordship over it all. He's either going to be all or nothing. The question you've got to ask is, which is it? And if you, like me, want Jesus to be all and yet realise the difficulty of this personally, then pray with me now. I'm going to pray now and I'm going to pray in line with Jesus' own statement in, in chapter 10, 24. In fact, it's the only reference I'll make to the, the latter half of our section. There's lots like we'd love, love to do, but let me just focus in on this one bit. Because when Jesus prays, <clears throat> he prays, that, oh, he thanks God for revealing his wisdom 
hiding it from the learned and the wise and, and revealing it to children. We're going to pray that God will be pleased to reveal himself to us in such a way and reveal the Father to us in such a, such a way that it would be impossible not to think and live like Jim Elliot. Inconceivable to think that comfort or convenience would ever crowd out the priority, the urgency, the importance and the joy of following Christ wherever he would lead us. Would you pray with me? Father, we hear you address us personally today in your word. Jesus calls us, follow him. And that's terrifying. And that's difficult. And by left to our own devices, neither will we or can we. But we ask now that by your spirit and through your son, you would reveal the joy and the significance and the urgency of your kingdom purposes and plans for our lives personally for the lives of people in our family, for the lives of people in our town, for the lives of people across our nation and indeed across the, the earth, that we could do nothing else than honour you with our very lives, regardless of the discomfort, irrespective of the inconvenience, not counting the cost, but seeing it all as gain. And we pray it for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite the band to come back up here. And in fact, it is again. I hope you notice this. The songs that we sing at church are not just sort of randomly allocated. It's not like we just sort of pick one out of the air. Every day. This is actually, again, it's, it's in, the, in the cutting with the grain of everything we've said today. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is a prayer for, exactly to, for, for Christ to do exactly what we're talking about. Not me, but Christ through me. Would you sing with us?